The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. From the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you're in kindergarten through fifth grade and you'd like to go to children's church, please join the volunteers by the Kids Zone sign. If it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them to get them checked in. Good morning. My name is Mark. And if you need any more encouragement for those job openings, we've been worshiping here for about a year and a half, and I still wanted to come on full-time staff here, so come on in. Uh, One of the great authors of the 19th century was Fyodor Dostoevsky. He's a Russian guy. He wrote Crime and Punishment and Brothers Karamazov and a few others. Uh, And when Dostoevsky was in his late 20s, he was part of this literary society And some of the members in that group started writing pamphlets and letters out to try to overthrow the Russian government. And the Russian government does not like when you try to overthrow them. And so a bunch of them were rounded up and sent to prison. And about a month later, they were sentenced to death. They were sentenced to be executed by a firing squad for their rebellion. And so they were all lined up. They were tied to posts. They're blindfolded. And they were read their crimes against the Russian czar, which... I can imagine it sounds very dreary in Russian. Uh, and they were declared guilty. They were to be punished by execution. And then at the very last second, uh, this guy comes in riding on a horse, and he's waving a white flag, and he yells out, the czar pardons these men. The czar pardons these men. Can you imagine how much relief Dostoevsky and his friends felt at that moment? Right? They were caught, tried, found guilty. They were under condemnation for their treason. And seconds before their execution, they're pardoned. And if you read any of his books, uh, Dostoevsky's time in prison, it really feeds in a lot to his writings and his faith in Christ. But what's interesting is that the men didn't get to go home after they were pardoned. They actually were sent to Siberia to a work camp for the next four years. They were pardoned. They were no longer under condemnation, but they still spent what must have felt like an eternity at a Russian labor camp. If you're here this morning uh, and you consider yourself a Christian, you believe the Bible, you trust Jesus, but maybe the gospel just starts to seem a little stale to you. Uh, Maybe you don't quite see how Jesus really interacts with you on a day-to-day basis, how he affects how you live. For a lot of people, you know that in Christ you're pardoned for your sin, right? You know you're no longer under condemnation from God, but you still feel like you're stuck in Siberia, right? Because you haven't seen a drastic change in your life. You still have addictions. You still struggle with anger. You can't seem to control your tongue. Uh, Your anxiety gets the best of you, right? You don't find yourself having much compassion for the poor or the, the outcast. We love the good news of being forgiven through faith in the work of Jesus, but because you and I still struggle with sin every day, 
Sometimes we think we, it's sins we think we should be done struggling with at this point in our lives. It's often hard for us to see where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? It's easy for us to feel like we have escaped execution only to end up in a Siberian labor camp. It's a weird image. It works for me. Maybe it doesn't for you. Uh, but Easter Sunday was just last week. That Sunday where Christians around the world, we wear bright clothes, we eat way too much food, we stuff candy into plastic eggs for some reason, and we as Christians shamelessly and joyfully celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It's a beautiful Sunday. And to kind of continue the unfolding of what the resurrection means for us and what it can mean for you today, if you're not sure what you believe, we're going to be spending the next several weeks in Romans chapter 8. Because Romans 8 is essentially the Bible's answer to the question, like, what does the resurrection do for me? What does the resurrection do in my life? Uh, And it is such good news. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that you give it to us because you love us and you want us to know who you are and what Jesus has done for us. So would you send your Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, open up our ears, help us to hear what you would have us hear this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We can't spend a ton of time on it, but just to kind of help us figure out what's, why Paul is writing Romans 8, uh, kind of the gist of Romans 7 that comes right before which I would recommend you, if you've got time to go home and read it, it is a beautiful chapter. Uh, Paul writes about this inner struggle he has. And when you read Romans 7, you can't help but just kind of uh, sigh when you, when you read someone putting to words about the struggle that we all have. Paul says in verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You ever thought that? And he goes on in verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And this is how Paul ends Romans 7, right before 8. He cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I mean, have you ever had thoughts like that? I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I do want to do. What's wrong with me? I would argue that if you've never had those thoughts, then you aren't actually trying to fight your sin, right? If you aren't struggling and agonizing over your sin, then you probably aren't trying to put it to death. Right? Have you ever heard that saying from John Owen? He was a Puritan in the 17th century. He was a theologian. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Someone gave me a sticker, and I think I put it on a banjo case. It's a really thing, weird thing to put on a banjo case, but it's a great saying, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If you're here this morning and you are tired of fighting, right? you're exhausted from trying to break those habits, those patterns, of anger and lust and greed. Maybe you don't even know who Jesus really is, but you came here looking for answers. Y'all, we have some really good news for you. Because what does the very first verse in chapter 8 of Romans say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's probably the clearest explanation of the gospel the whole Bible has. In spite of how you were feeling this morning, in spite of how you were beating yourself up for what you did last night or last week or last month, 
if your trust is in Jesus and in his life, death, and resurrection, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. Amen? Scripture doesn't say that no condemnation is something that you could possibly attain if you do a good enough job in this life and you put away some things and you start doing other things. No, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you now. Y'all, please hear this. Romans 8 is not something that you kind of graduate to after Romans 7, thankfully. The Christian life is not struggle with sin, fight, fight, fight. And then once you get control over that particular sin, then you're no longer condemned. Praise God, that's not how it works. Romans 7 and Romans 8 is true for the Christian simultaneously. And Paul says in the present tense in chapter 7, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. The evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And he says in the present tense, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, you are going to fight and struggle with sin until you die or until Jesus comes back. It's a cheery thought, isn't it? And maybe you hear that and you feel like an even greater burden has just been placed on your shoulders. And if that's you, I would encourage you to find an older man or woman in this church who has been following Jesus for a very long time because they can help give you some perspective on things. Uh, Because they will tell you that even when you do manage to get control over one sin and you put it to death, another sin just creeps in to take its place. Typically, you won't struggle with the same sin your entire life. You might. Uh, But by God's grace, you will continue to grow more and more in your sanctification. And that's just a Bible word that means that you will grow more and more to look like Jesus. But that is a lifelong process. It has no end date in this life. But just think about this for a second. What would a church look like if it was filled with people who knew they struggled with sin and yet who knew that because they were in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for them? Like, would we not be a beautiful, attractive community if we could be open and honest about our brokenness? Not reveling in it, not giving in to it, but acknowledging our faults and our shortcomings to each other very openly and also very openly praising God because of the forgiveness we have in Jesus. Have we not totally missed it if we only think of what we have in Jesus as only having eternal consequences? Like, I follow Jesus, so I'm going to be good when I die. You know, the, the gospel is so much more than that. It's nothing less than that, but it has implications for how we live and interact with each other today. So I think a good question to ask ourselves is how can this truth, right, that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's therefore now no condemnation, what the Bible calls justification, right, for those who are justified by faith and you're counted as righteous in God's eyes, how can that truth shape how we live today? How can no longer being under condemnation for sin enable us to die more and more to sin and live more and more a life that's pleasing to God? Well, what motivates you? Is it fear of consequences, or is it love? And no, you can't give the answer that Michael Scott gives in the office when he asks himself, would he rather be feared or loved? Remember what he said? He said, I I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. (laughs) Fear can be a good motivator, right? I find myself trying to motivate my kids with fear of consequences all the time, right? Things will get taken away if you don't do blank. You know, their precious screen time that will be taken away if they keep doing fill-in-the-blank. And that might work temporarily. They might listen, but they're just going to go back to doing it, 
right? I mean, it can, if you can imagine a time when you used f- the fear of consequences to stop yourself from doing something, it might have worked, but odds are it, it, it wasn't a permanent fix. Right? It doesn't stick. And fear is never the main driving force that the Bible gives as to why we should obey God. Even in the Old Testament, we just finished a series on the book of Exodus. When does God give his people the Ten Commandments that he says, follow these? Was it before or after he freed them from slavery? After. It was after, thank you. <laughs> he, gives those, he gives them the law to those who are no longer under condemnation from their old masters. All right. And in our passage today, Paul lays out in Romans 7 that universal struggle with sin. You delight in God's law, but you find yourself unable to keep it perfectly. What is the motivation he gives you in chapter 8? It's love, right? If you are in Christ Jesus, God finds no fault with you because Jesus was condemned. You, Christian, are not. Look back at verses 2 and 3. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Uh, if you and I are honest, if you, can th- if you can think of that one friend or family member who you really want to know Jesus, and if they could only hear one message, one sermon, if we're honest, it would probably not be one that was just all about love, right, and had no consequences, no fear. You know, it would probably not just be, hey, there's no condemnation for you. If you trust in what Jesus did for you, He's taken it all. He's paid it all. So you don't have to worry about anything. If we're honest, that's probably not what we're going to go with. Um, We'd probably want some fear in there, right? We want to be like, if you don't do this, these are the consequences. And absolutely, there are eternal consequences for not following Jesus. There are things to be feared. But all that is the beauty of the gospel. It's this perfect love of God casts out all your fear. That's what verses 2 and 3 are talking about. Right? Paul writes that there is something that the law cannot do. As good and perfect and holy as the law is, there's something it cannot do. The law can bring fear and say, unless you obey God, you will not be accepted by God. That's what the law says. But we all know that none of us have kept the law for even a day of our lives. The law can bring fear and condemnation, but it's only through Jesus' keeping of the law on our behalf and Jesus being condemned in our place that, as verse 4 says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The only thing that can actually change your heart and change your actions and cast out fear of condemnation is if you know that the God of the universe loves you enough to take on human form, to live a life of obedience, perfectly fulfilling every aspect of God's law, offering himself up as a sacrifice on the cross, three days later rising again from the dead, so that you could be brought into his family. It's not just so that he could say, okay, you're good now. It's so he can call you a son or his daughter. Jesus, God the Son, did all of that for you before he asks for even an ounce of obedience from you. You were called to obey God, not in order to be loved, but because in Christ you already have the infinite love of God. Amen? That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what we're going to see in the rest of this chapter and in the rest of the New Testament is that to be in Christ, uh, it means that by faith in Christ, you have died with Christ, you have been raised with Christ, and now the perfect record of Jesus Christ belongs to you. 
Galatians 2.20 puts it this way. It's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Are we starting to see how it runs contrary to the gospel when we relate to God the way we typically do? Right, where we think God must really love us if we're doing well and we're kind of firing on all our cylinders and obeying him. But God must be really ticked off at us when we don't obey him. I mean, we think that way because that's how we act, isn't it? I mean, I 100%, I'm a high school teacher now, I 100% treat my students differently based on how they act. (laughs) I am kinder when they listen and I give them more assignments to do when they tick me off. There's a reason they all have a presentation on the book of Ephesians next week. <laughs> you are a more enjoyable person to be around at work when your coworkers and your employees are doing their work well, right? Uh, if you're a parent, you find yourself having tons of kindness and patience for your kids until they cross your will for the third time, right? That day, right? The, the way we view and treat each other is incredibly unpredictable. Is that fair? not so with God, right? Because unlike you and I, God is a God of justice, right? He is perfectly just. And while one aspect of his justice means that he will not and cannot let sin slide, there must be a punishment for sinning against a holy God. Uh, Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is what? Death. So if all have sinned, and if the penalty for sin is death, then the sobering fact of God's justice is that every single one of us stands condemned and deserve death for our sin. But because God is a God of justice, once the penalty for sin has been paid, God will not, cannot demand a second payment for that sin. Does that make sense? This is a beautiful truth of Christianity. If Christ has lived in our place, and if he has died in our place, and if he has risen in our place, it would actually be unjust of God to demand a second payment for that sin. He won't do it. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, and it is, and if your faith is in Jesus, there is nothing more that you can do to add or take away from your standing before God. Let me end with a story. I have no idea if this is a true story. Uh, but my pastor in college told it a few times, and so it must be true, right? So 40 or 50 years ago, a man decided he wanted to take a road trip in Europe, and I'm assuming he's a very wealthy man because he wanted to do it in his Rolls Royce. And he put his Rolls Royce on a boat and shipped it over to Europe and started this bougie road trip over there. Uh, Rolls Royce being this super expensive luxury elitist car. Um, And he was about three quarters of the way through his road trip, when he got stuck in the Swiss Alps because a little spring broke on his car. He was stranded and I've never had a Rolls Royce, but I don't think you just take those to like AutoZone to get them fixed. I think they can make all their their parts for this car. And so the guy managed to find a phone and he calls the Rolls Royce office in London and he tells them what happened. They said, okay, no, no worries, we'll take care of it. And within hours, they had put their mechanic on a private jet, loaded down with all the parts that they needed, flew him over to the Swiss Alps, He fixed this guy's car and then flew back on the private jet, which is great. This guy was so excited to have his Rolls Royce back. He finished his uh, road trip, 
but probably couldn't really enjoy the rest of it because he just knew that this monster bill was coming. And he didn't hear anything from the company for a few weeks after he got back home. So he called him, told him who he was and what all they did for him. And they said, okay, we'll, we'll get back with you shortly. And about a week later, he gets this letter in the mail. And this is all the letter says. It says, dear sir, in regards to your inquiry, there is no record of any Rolls Royce breaking down ever. Have a good day. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? This company would go to such extreme lengths to protect their reputation that they would just eat the cost of every repair so that they could actually say, there is no record of our cars having any problems ever. Friends, if you are in Christ, if your trust is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if you trust that Jesus died in your place on the cross, that he defeated death and rose again, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again one day to make all things new. Do you know what the Father can say to you if you're in Christ? He can say, there is no record of you ever having sinned, ever. You are fully and totally accepted and fully loved by God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we confess that we cannot wrap our heads around your goodness to us and your grace. We, all, we love you. We thank you for forgiving us. And we know that when someone is forgiven, it doesn't just go away. Someone has to eat the cost of that. We thank you that Jesus went to the cross joyfully for us to absorb every ounce of the penalty we owe to you. And now we're free by faith. We thank you for taking rebellious sinners and turning us into sons and daughters who you love and cherish. Lord, you help us to keep this perspective, not just as an eternal, everything's going to be okay in the end, but now. We are free. We are under no condemnation. We are free to love and serve and give of ourselves. Lord, use this church to spread that good news, especially in Chattanooga. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we are free. We are under no condemnation. We are free to love and serve and give of ourselves. Lord, use this church to spread that good news, especially in Chattanooga. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.